Hello, everybody. Bob Oxley here. It's time for tips, topics, issues, and positions. And uh, today's topic is going to talk about ethics, that ethical code. Why do people behave the way they do today and their thinking? And we're very fortunate. We have a full professor here, Dr. John Jones, who is a full professor of psychology at Dixie State University. And welcome, John. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. That's great. Uh, uh, the reason we picked this topic is we had a lot of input from our listeners indicating that they're looking at conservatism, they're looking at liberals and the environment they're living in. And what came out of this is I'm reading between the lines and some of the people, the call-ins were that you are just going with the flow. They're not thinking on their own and they're, they're being aware, made aware of that and all these other factors come into play, you know, fake news, media manipulation, yeah. all that kind of thing. But yeah. I thought, I asked around, and they said, you've got to get a hold of Professor Jones. Because well, he's been you. thinking about this. <laughs> so here you are. Sure. All right. Um, usually what we try to do is we try to start off with the basics, and then we get more sophisticated as we go along. Okay. And I just want to turn this over to you. When we're talking about morality, ethics, there's two different good, bad, right, wrong type of thing. Right. Um, do we have control or is it, are we being really being manipulated in, and can you give us just an overview basically sure. and then we'll just, it will broaden off of that. Okay. Yeah, you bet. Um, well, we, I like to say we have the potential for control that we have the potential to um, evaluate arguments very carefully and make informed decisions. Um, but frequently and it appears more and more frequently that's not the way that we're operating in the world. And, and so I, I believe that there is evidence that uh, primarily we're operating at a fairly automatic level, that we're processing information at a very shallow level. Um, and part of that's probably the, the nature of our culture these days, right? The constant flow of information that we're trying to manage and deal with. But I also think, um, you know, ideology and identity have a lot to do with that as well. So the more strongly we attach to an ideology, the more that becomes a part of, I, of our identity as a person, the, um, the, the more quickly we make decisions and we tend to make those decisions in line with our identity and ideology rather than based on the merits of the argument or the proposal. And there's a good deal of evidence about that. And that can even override some of our more foundational um, moral concerns, for example, that, you know, rather than making decisions based on um, our deeply held values or convictions, we simply toe the party line, so to speak. And unfortunately, I think that's become more common uh, over time. And I think it's a big, it's a big problem. So. Well, do you think, um, we, here we are, we're both in higher education, right? Uh, and academics and education is very important to us, but there's been some, um, uh, ideas conveyed saying that this is exactly what the governments of the world want. They want an ignorant population so that there's no pushback on policies that they deem to be beneficial to themselves or to the government. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that in some of your research that you've done or some of your investigation? Well, uh, I think to some degree. 
Um, I think that that makes sense from a psychological standpoint that if you're in power and if the system serves your power, then um, it is to your benefit to prevent or uh, subdue the masses, so to speak, so that um, you, know, you can maintain that position. And that tends to be the primary goal of, of power is to protect itself. Um, and protect, of course, all the benefits that come with it. And so, yeah, I, I think it's quite likely that you see that in most systems of power, uh, most systems of government. So we have these ideals that we talk about and, you know, what our government is supposed to be. And I'm not sure that it's ever really been that. But, um, and I think that has a lot to do with the effects of power and people's sort of blind allegiance to one perspective or one party as it as is the case in in here in the states so um, yeah I, th I think in a lot of different ways the way uh, politics has evolved is um, we need to do some work basically I think we have a lot of work yeah. to do I think what's happened just recently to uh, us residents here in Utah, we went to the polls and voted for Medicaid expansion uh, last November. And then when the uh, state legislature convened in January, at the end of January, February, mm -hmm. it's, it's in session right now, uh, it was like whatever we voted in favor of as far as the Medicaid expansion, like, you, thanks for your vote, but uh, we're going to change it. Right. It's a... It, that was kind of a slap in the face. And, yeah. And so even if we, even if we try to convey to people, you know, voting counts, this is your, this is, this is the way we express ourselves. It's a logical way to do this. Even with that, there's a lot, it was a lot of pushback on the part of a lot of the citizens here in the state of Utah mm -hmm. saying, what, what's the sense of voting? They're going to change it anyway. Um, do you think that has an, an effect on why people might be saying, Hey, just throw their hands doesn't in the matter. air. It doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll connect this to some research, some classic research in my field, um, having to do with what's called learned helplessness. So in this research, it, it seems pretty disconnected from what we're talking about, but I'll try to make the connection. So right. um, in this research, this was Martin Seligman. He, um, he put dogs in a cage, so they were confined and couldn't escape. And they would occasionally receive electric shock to the bottom of their feet. And of course, initially they were very distressed and upset. They did everything they could to try to escape the situation and make a change in their environment. Um, but over time it appeared that they simply gave up. And even after Seligman changed the conditions of the environment, so that if the dogs would have simply tried again, they would have been able to end their um, their suffering. They they didn't. Mm. Even when they could have made a difference, they they failed to act. And so I think we're prone to developing that same um, outlook that you know we try and we try, and in this case, you know we um, we educate ourselves. We find some consensus about what we want as a society in our, in our state. We let our voices be heard, and then it, it appears that they're largely ignored. 
I think there's a risk there that people will conclude that, yes, it, it really doesn't matter. But that's not always true, right? Yeah. So there will be times where that door is open and rather than just sitting back and saying, well, we've learned that it, you know, whatever we say, ultimately it, it never gets um, put into effect or it never makes a difference. Um, but that might not be true next time. So, you know, it, it's, it is easy and it makes some sense to you know, conclude that this really doesn't mean anything and it really doesn't matter. Um, but I, I think that that would be a mistake. So I think for the citizens who participate and, you know, they're doing their duty as citizens and they're taking action and they're letting their voices be heard, I would just encourage people to do that regardless of the feedback that you get, regardless of the um, the fact that the legislature you know, basically ignores the will of the voters. And there's another option as well. Okay. So, and that is to vote for somebody else next time oh. so that, you know, you can um, influence the process in the long term by electing officials who will commit to abiding by the will of the voters. And I think we've, we've been able to identify now who in the, in the system doesn't seem to be willing to do that. And I'm sure there are candidates out there, future candidates for office, who would gladly commit to taking a different approach. And so I guess ultimately it kind of comes down to who, who are we putting in office and are they really going to um, enact to some degree the will of the voters or not? And if they're not, then they don't get elected next time. I mean, that would, I suppose, be the ideal long-term solution. Got it. Uh, do you think that uh, that that would look at the institution of government, but these other other institutions all come into play as far as your ethical codes concern, your family, uh, religion, uh, the education system we talked about briefly, uh, as well as economics. Yeah, all these these five basic societal institutions that you find in virtually every society. Right. As far as us formulating our own ethical code. Uh, there's lots of conflict in there, right. a lot of influence in there. Is it really our ethical code, or is it just a response to a lot of um, input from a lot of different areas that we try to kind of assemble it in some sense of logic, supposedly? <laughs> right. Well, I there again, I go back kind of to the argument that we have, you know, the potential to take ownership of an ethical code or a system of morality or values and then really act in ways that are consistent with our this internal system that we've uh, created and that we uh, that we embrace but oftentimes those even people who do embrace a strong ethical code uh, there are multiple forces and factors that can um, override it and you know, it's it's pretty consistent across um, lots of different studies that most people are vulnerable to some of those forces. And so, you know, whether you're a liberal or conservative or a libertarian or you fall somewhere on, in between, um, you know, you can feel like, yeah, I really value 
uh, taking care of people. I really think the government should play a role in ensuring that everyone's treated fairly and, and justice is a foundation of my morality. Um, but under the right conditions, uh, people tend to either forget about that or they make decisions based on some other criteria. So from my perspective, and just part, this is partly just my opinion, um, that we're not thinking enough and talking enough about these foundational virtues um, and moral codes, as you call them. And, and we're not finding common ground with people at this level okay. so that other forces are essentially, uh, you know, compelling or influencing our decisions despite what we might think is right or wrong or moral or immoral. Um, and, and I think ultimately the decisions that are made are, um, they're just, they're not as good. The decisions are not as grounded as they probably could be or should be. And it also means that we're less likely to find consensus among people with different moral views. And so, we end up with these decisions that you know politicians are making, and it's it's almost as if we all react to those decisions or to the to the policies that they've proposed without ever being involved from some solid grounding in something like virtue or morality, um, and I and I think that's just part of the culture now. Okay, let me ask you a question then. Based yeah. on, on your knowledge and your observations and experience and knowledge base, do we see a disintegration not only for U.S. population, but globally as a result of all these outside pressures and the majority of the population saying, uh, I'm going to go with whatever <laughs> the government wants me to, and I'm just going to work and pay the bills and, and have, have a quality of life the best I can come up with and move forward. Are we finding that or uh, it, I mean, do we have a lot of people still willing to stand up and wave a banner and saying, you've got to look at it from this standpoint and are people willing to do that if there's a little bit of controversy and maybe their neighbors are not uh, on the same page as they are? Uh, are people caving in now and just saying it's not, not worth all the hassle? I think some people are, but I've been surprised a little bit by, um, by how wrong I've been in those kinds of predictions. So, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, the sense that it doesn't really matter what I think or even how I vote. Um, I think many people are resisting that conclusion and they're trying to find ways um, to exert their voice. And I think we've seen a an increase in that kind of activity, not just here in the, uh, in the United States, but in many other countries where, you know, large segments of the population are dissatisfied with what their governments are doing. And, and so I think that is a key element to, you know, kind of push back yeah. against what might feel like, you know, an unlikely outcome despite the fact that we might feel that what we do might not have an impact, I think it's important that we do it anyway. 
That's uh, encouraging. Yeah. And that's, that's through your, your observations you've seen. Is that in the last five years or so that you're seeing people finally standing up instead of just going with the flow and their decision-making process or maybe, um, it might, my perception could be the result of me just paying more attention to what's happening okay. politically. Yeah. But that is my perception that over the last, um, maybe 10 years or, or so. Um, and I kind of think about the, uh, the tea party as an early example in this era, this 10 year span. Um, you know, those, those were a group of people who were very vocal and active and involved and expressing their dismay about what the government was doing. And we saw that with, um, like the Occupy Wall Street group. Yes. Um, and those related groups that, you know, were willing to go and sit down and, you know, make sure that they got noticed and that people heard what they had to say. And, and I think we've seen that more recently as well with, uh, with other groups. So the, the women's March that has happened for the last couple of years is a good example of that. Yes. Now I'm not, I can't say if that is, really is a change from what we might have seen, you know, 20 years ago or not, but it feels like a change, a shift to me. And, and I think it's a really important one and a valuable one. I'm a, I'm a product of the uh, 1960s. So we're used to protest on a daily basis on every campus. So, uh, and then it, then it quieted down in the 1980s, 1990s, where people just wanted a nice, safe, secure life and moving forward. And, what you're saying now, based on your observations, at least over the last decade, you're starting to see some uh, efforts, uh, like the Me Too movement, the right. Women's March. Some uh, more activism, basically. Yeah, and so that's that might be uh, that might be a positive uh, positive thing going on out there as far as ethical codes. Maybe they're looking at not just accepting uh, a prescribed set of values. Right. whether it be by the government, religion, through the educational right. socialization process or whatever it may be, maybe people are saying, I'm an individual and these are my conclusions and to move forward on that. And yeah. And I, you know, I think that's, um, that's something that's very easy for people to give up on a little bit. This idea that, you know, I'm an independent, you know, um, person with views and rights that are just as valuable as the next person's. And I'm not just a, you know, a, a tiny little piece of a system that I just have to, you know, go along with. Um, now that's, of course, it's, it's difficult because everybody's different and trying to find common ground when, you know, we, we emphasize individualism like that. And, it, and I think people can take that too far as well. So what happens is based on your own identity, you start to form allegiances with other people who share that identity, and then you become a product of your group rather than a, a true individual. And one, once you do that, and again, this is partly just my opinion, but it is based in a lot of research in social psychology, but as soon as your identity is more rooted in in your group and some shared um, reality that you that you formed, then the individual by by nature just 
gets subsumed. It becomes secondary, okay. and people will often sacrifice the their own well-being and their own preferences and even their own morality for the group or for authority. And that's not always bad. Um, but I tend to be someone who really leans toward this uh, very, I guess in this way I'm libertarian, right? I very much think that the individual matters and our choices and, and freedoms matter. And if we give those up, then I, I don't think that's not the ideal uh, as far as I'm concerned. I think we've got to find a balance, essentially. I mean, obviously, we're all in this together. So there's got to be cooperation and there's got to be we've got to find common ground. Uh, but in doing that, I don't think we can uh, give up this our own personal freedoms. I don't think we have to sacrifice our own moralities for it. Um, I think there are ways to find consensus that allow us to accomplish both of those things. But the problem is we're so divided, right? Yes. There, there are often yes. uh, such, such gaps between, for example, people on the left and the right. And I think that this is mostly appearance. I think that the media and social media, regular media, it creates in our minds this impression that we are incredibly divided, that there are really just two sides and they're, they, they hold their views so firmly that you know, they're stubborn and they don't want to talk to anyone else who disagrees with them. But I don't think that's the reality on the ground, so to speak. So when I walk around my neighborhood, I know that there are uh, conservatives and liberals and libertarians and other um, you know, those on the religious left. And so there's a lot of variety. And in 98% of my interactions with them have nothing to do with our disagreements about politics. And, and I think that's really important to remember because we're, I think we, we're developing a mindset of division based on a very thin slice of yeah. reality, it, essentially. I, I'm having the experience over the last five years, I'm going along with what you're saying. My neighbors have bought into this political polarization, and we do talk about a number of things, mm -hmm. and I enjoy being with them, and they enjoy being with me, and it's, it's very exciting. But the minute anything to do with politics is brought up, <laughs> it's like dead silence. Yeah. Like there's a, a border there. You've just crossed that line, yeah. where, and we're not going there. Right. Uh, I don't know if that's healthy. It, it's like there's no open dialogue. It's either this way, like you were saying, either liberal or conservative. There's yeah. no moderate. There's no, you can't be a little bit of both. Yeah, It's got to be one or the other. And, and may, what you're saying is, is it social media that's planting that seed and, and saying, hey, we're polarized. And they, we keep hearing that on a daily basis. To some degree, I, I think, um, like I, I really am confident that it plays some role in that sense of division. Um, you know, and I, and I have friends and family members who are very different from me in terms of political perspectives. And I do also. And we can have conversations about political topics, um, but they're difficult. And, and it makes sense why people would shy away from those if, um, 
if they believe that this is a source of division, right? So if it's someone you love and care about, you don't want to feel um, divided from them. You don't, you want to maintain that relationship. And so sometimes avoiding political discourse could be a defensive process where you realize, you know, if we really get into this, we might not be talking again, you know, in, a, in another month. And that, that has happened, unfortunately. Yes. And, and I think that that is a problem. I mean, if that's, if that's the case with people we really care about, if, if it's possible for us to be divided against people we really care about, then it's no wonder that, you know, with strangers or even just acquaintances that we feel divided from them. And so I think it's really important that they, we find a way to have these discussions without tearing apart relationships. And I, I think a big part of that is learning to have a little bit of empathy for people who have different views from you and understanding a little bit better why they hold those views. Because okay. we tend to do the simple thing, which is to, to assume that, um, that people are stupid or irrational or, you know, that there's something wrong with them morally, maybe. But those simple explanations are never right. I mean, there's always more nuance. But we just don't take the time and we don't give people the space to, to truly explain who they are and why they believe the things that they do. We're just too ready to pounce on them and dismiss them. And I think that's a bad, a very, very bad habit to be in. And, and we've both experienced that. I'm assuming that you yeah. have. I know I have. For sure. Uh, and you just back away. Uh, right. And then what happens. Especially if it's a family member. Right. And then what happens is we, we start to censor ourselves. And we start to be really careful about what we reveal. And because, you know, let's face it, we, we don't like to be rejected. And we don't like to be ostracized. And. Um, and judge negatively. So to give people a little bit more space, you know, with with a, a little bit of um, compassion, right, a desire to take their perspective, yes, I think that would ultimately be uh, really valuable. And it's something that we can all do. We can all take the responsibility to do that. And it doesn't depend on any politician um, doing anything at all. Yeah, that open-mindedness, that famous right. term, right? Yes. Being open-minded. I, I, I think we've lost that somewhere. We have. It's um, uh, At least people, I, I think, at, at the more extremes of different ideologies have have definitely lost that. They, yeah. they only want to hear from people who agree with them, and uh, for the most part, and they, they don't want to accept people just as basic human beings with flaws and, you know, trying to figure out the world, uh, we don't see people that way anymore, or we tend not to see them that way. And, and so we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. We, we don't give people space to learn and grow from their mistakes or um, to even develop or, or maybe evolve in their, in their views, right? That's difficult to do if you never talk to anybody who thinks differently than you got it so yeah it, it, it and i have to based on my own experiences especially in the last three to five years uh, yeah 
It's just I, I'm like I'm walking on eggshells. Right. I'm afraid to. And the terminology and the, the sensitivity out there because of media influence. That's and, right. And uh, it's really uh, caused a problem. And then what's ironic is if you look at even our Congress, uh, voting along political lines. Right. Those individuals in Congress are getting so much pressure from their own respective political parties. Right. That if you vote this way, your career could be done as far as being a politician will never support right. you again. Kind of a scary thing. Right. And so if you're a politician that, that holds office and that's what you really want to do, yes, then what becomes most important to you is the next election. Yeah. And the people who make the most noise, If so if you make a decision that, that you know upsets your base, so to speak, you're going to hear from them and you're going to get the impression that, you know, if I keep voting my conscience, so, you know, if, if that's what you're using as your criteria, then I'm not, I might not win the next election. So I'm going to start voting the way these very vocal constituents want me to vote. And, and that's troubling because the point of serving should not be to continue to serve just as an end in itself, right? To continue to hold this office is the goal rather than to initiate, you know, some positive outcomes. And, that, and that's their career choice. Right. That's what's going on here. This is their career. Their career, part of their right. career is to get reelected yep. and to keep the constituents happy, at least let them perceive as to the way you're working in committees and things of that right. sort, even though you're only one small little piece of the whole pie. That's right. In Congress or in the state legislature or whatever. Yeah, I don't know what happened to, you know, consensus building. We know it's still possible because we've seen it happen on a few rare occasions lately. Hmm. So with criminal justice reform, for example. So we know that lawmakers, and this is at the national level, we know that they can still reach across the aisle and they can still find compromise and things to agree upon. But those tend to be, perhaps they tend to be issues that people are not quite as passionate about, yeah. right? that people are really paying close attention to and they have very strong opinions about, that if it's one of those issues, then if you compromise as a representative um, then you're you're a traitor, basically. You're a yeah. traitor to the party or the cause or whatever it is, and so you're you've got to go. That's awful. <laughs> I That's think awful. so too. I mean, it's this standard of purity, basically ideological purity, that it's not conducive to the kind of society I think most of us want. No. So I I agree with you, Doctor Jones. I hate to say this to you. I I told you this would happen. Yeah. I tell it to all my all my kids. Yeah. Uh, we're out of time. Yeah, time I'm, I know. never stops. <laughs> uh, would you be interested in coming back uh, and continuing Absolutely. with this discussion? Maybe a little bit more. We'll get some specifics as far as yeah. those five institutions and yeah. the influences. I would love to have you back if you would accept our invitation. Absolutely. I would I would come back anytime. And, um, yeah, I'd love to get into some of the sort of the psychological theories about, be great. about politics and morality and because I think understanding some of those can help us, um, you know, be better, essentially. That's so, All right. You've just heard from Dr. John Jones, who is a full professor of psychology at Dixie State University. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for tuning in to Tips, Topics, Issues, and Positions here at KDXI 100.3. And you can see Dr. Jones' smiley face uh, on YouTube, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Alexa, and you name it, we got it. We're out there. You can look at us up 24 hours, seven days a week. This show is broadcasting uh, on Friday at 3 p.m., rebroadcasting at 5 p.m. on Saturday. And so thank you very much for joining us. And uh, Stay tuned for next week, and we'll have another topic, another issue, and another position. Signing off. Bye-bye now.